0: Oh, sorry. He uh, just did um, two thumbs
1: up at us. Oh, OK. Does well, I
2: mean, we, we don't have started. to immediately start. I mean, John, no, I John, John was through the middle of rather an interesting uh, anecdote. you no, never hear now. Well, it wasn't
1: that interesting. I just, I just I said to Adam, let's ask each other questions. And if we ask each yeah. other questions, then it's going to be fine. And that's what happened with me and Louis. And it was fine.
2: Like so, there we go, That is yeah. the uh, that was the back end of a conversation about John's live shows. <laughs> if you'd like to go and see, you can't. Yes, too uh, late. Leicester Square Theatre, John Ronson, two weeks ago. Yeah. Um, we're oh, joined by so John good. Ronson. Hello, this is uh, Josie and Robin's uh, book shambles. This is
0: Robin and Josie's book shambles.
2: Yes, the stranglehold that the media elite hold upon you is now made even tighter with our communist and anarchist Stalinist. hands. Stalinist. hands. So, John, when did you realise you were a Stalinist? Oh, no, hang on. Wrong podcast. <laughs> the, um, I wanted to start off with uh, John Ronson. I've seen... Well, I've read, uh, I think, all of your books. Ooh. Um and I want to start off because I've just been reading *The Divided Self* by R.D. Lang. Right. And also, uh, I watched *Asylum* last night. Have you ever seen *Asylum*?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. There? that's this documentary about this therapeutic um, sort of experimental mental hospital in. Uh... It was
2: it was it was just in London. It was wasn't it? it yeah, was, it, was... it was in Belsas Park.
1: Yeah. Is it the one yeah. and, and that and,
0: they take the Mickey out of it in *Jam*, where they've got a school where they're like, you can just take all the drugs you want? No, no, you've... no. It's
2: not. No, that oh, you're thinking okay. of the different liberals. This isn't a liberal school. This is people. People, some of whom With was schizophrenic so, and RD and... Lang thought that if they're just in a place of empathy and non-judgment in this house and it is remarkable and it's mm. incredible and it's got things like one of the guys there who's who seems to be babbling all the time and he's really forthright and eventually when they watched back they went you know what he's using a lot of uh, Iceni mythology <laughs> and ancient Roman uh, I, and this is what he's just throwing out in whatever kind of protective shell or whatever it is. But I want to start off because... Right. One can I, before yes. you
1: go away from that, can I tell you something? Though? No, I wasn't going to go away from it. Okay, go. Can I tell but you something tell just anyway, just in case yeah. it does go in a direction where I can't say what I want to say, uh, which is the fact that um, I met Ardy Lang's son, Adrian Lang, who's a solicitor in Highgate um, and kind of has bad... I mean, I'm sure he has some very good memories of his father, but... He wrote the,
2: the uh, biography Yeah, of he sort of wrote a of biography story, yeah. of his father.
1: And he was talking about these therapeutic communities that his father would set up. Um, and the idea is there would be no distinction between uh, doctor and patient. We're all in this together. Um, and I said, so so what happened? Did the patients kind of get get well? And he said, no, the doctors all went crazy. Hi. And so basically I said, so look, if you've got like at one end of the room madness and another end of the room sanity, then it's people's proclivity to all move towards the madness end. I've and he oh, said, yeah. that's
2: terrible. That's the bathwater theory, isn't it? That in the end, we all go to the cold water of insanity. It doesn't start heating up. But or I don't know if how it is I, a cold water. I
0: don't know how I feel about describing mental illness in terms of, like, call, even calling it madness feels a bit strange but I, I So what that, I wanted to ask okay. is, like, how, like, what kind of insights did it give him into... Those conditions or those illnesses to have people in a more relaxed, empathetic place. Did it? Did it serve as a treatment? Like, what did it mean yeah. that the doctors got affected? Did that mean the doctors became ill, or did it mean the whole place adopted a different set of rules? Like,
1: well, this came from Adrian Lang's kind of biased, you know, son of his father. So this, is this, you know. So
0: he'd be like, sort of saying it as like a man in his fifties or sixties. Well, went bloody crazy like this, like yeah. I, I, and
1: we're well, talking also, about my dad. This is my dad things so sure, so you sure, know sure. so there was definitely a kind of sheen of bias towards all of but that but i'd be really interested um, to know like what well, it means like
0: does it um, mean that everybody became more like sympathetic to the point that they all changed the whole atmosphere of the place or did it help those people who were suffering like what does it mean
1: well this is Artie Lang's view about this I yeah. mean he was a very kind of radical anti-psychiatrist he kind of created the anti-psychiatry movement and so, so he
2: was a little bit wary about calling it anti-psychiatry because that wasn't because he didn't entirely want to that's what uh, reject he wasn't yes. he, he didn't want to say oh the, this it means all psychiatry is, is done and void I can't remember who it was it was a uh, it was a Marxist I think oh, actually oh was Thomas David, uh, might have been, yeah.
1: Thomas says it was it just died. Is, is it like the Scientologists love him? But they love Adi Lang as well. So, Ardy Lang, like a classic thing that Adi Lang would say, is that anxiety disorders don't exist. It's just a natural response to an anxiety inducing world. Now, I think there's truth on both yeah, sides of I it. I'm a, I'm a terrible that. liberal and I think there's truth on both sides of it. I think the world is getting more anxious and anxiety is a natural response to to a, to a world of systemic anxiety-inducing anxiety bullshit. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I think anxiety disorders really do exist. I mm-hmm. think some people are born with OCD and it's a very real thing. And the labelling of something like OCD can be really useful. So, so I totally see both points of view. And what I've noticed with... Like, and I, I, We could spend the whole hour talking about this if you wanted to but what, what i've noticed about the mental health world is that it's a world of real polemics a bit like social media that you either rd lang or you're dsm you're either like radically anti-psychiatry and anti-labeling or you are massively in favor of labeling and you think anybody who questions that is a scientologist i mean i'm being a little polemical here myself but i've noticed there was that kind of swing whereas obviously the truth is in the gray area in the middle
2: well, I should because I've just been reading *The Divided Self* again because it was on David Bowie's top hundred books of all time, oh, yeah. and uh, it's a fantastic list. Uh, it's one of those the, the moment that uh, all of these things suddenly were being kind of like you know thrown out after he uh, after he died uh, a few weeks ago. You just go, well, I'd better actually listen to his top twenty-five albums. Oh, they're all brilliant, and uh, and then I, I was looking at his top hundred. I thought, well, I haven't read all these. Oh, that looks like an interesting book about John Cage and Zen Buddhism. But and I thought, I haven't, I haven't read *Divided*. So, it's yet. a I really. Wait. We'll do a special just on the list of oh, David Bowie's top 100 idea. books because they are really mm-hmm. it's such interesting
1: do that? Are you going to, does that mean you have to like, read all 100 yeah, no good. well you can talk yeah. about we could do it might... all
2: year yeah, yeah. There's, well, I, I'm I'm about fifteen in. Okay, we'll um,
0: do, let's do this from now on. I'm reading Dan Rhodes's The press Professor Who Got Stuck in the Snow, at which the moment. is really funny. It's We've so talked funny. About it
2: before. Yeah. It's, it's basically a fictional Richard Dawkins getting trapped uh, in <laughs> a uh, former vicar's house uh, in the snow, trying desperately to get to the Women's Institute of Upper Bottom, uh, and uh, it's, it's yeah, it, nice. it's, it's pretty it's entertaining. It's full of
1: jokes. How are people but, feeling about Richard Dawkins at the moment? No, let's
2: not get off. We'll get back to that. Okay. But oh. let's let's not get because. I want to say that the thing is, with Divided Self and also probably Viktor Frankl's work as well, who is most uh, sorry famous. Not fam- well, oh, his, his, his that most that famous is work is uh, Man's Search for Meaning. He was um, in uh, a concentration camp in wow. uh, mm. during World War Two. And it's one of those books, which is like Primo Levi and, and people like that, where you have this incredible insight of how a human being what system they managed to use in such kind of, uh, you know, grotesque... So psychological
1: tricks you play on yourself to survive grotesque situations. Or what it is to be human in
2: that situation and what is required. And and it's really interesting. But he was another one of existential psychology, because that's part of what it comes from, doesn't it, with R.D. Lang, which is this kind of, you know, our fear of judgment, our sense of self, our sense of self-consciousness and how...
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: Because Well, the reason I want to move on then, it's to talk about a book of yours, which is also a film. The book is entirely different to the film, uh, which is Frank. Hmm. And as you know, Frank was one of my favourite films of, what was that, 2014? I didn't know that, but well, I'd I love, I love to hear it. I think it's a, a fascinating film, Thank uh, you. which takes as its starting point uh, having a kind of musician in a papier-mâché head, but yeah. it's not. A biography of Frank Sidebottom.
1: No. And that is. I understand uh, why that might confuse people. <laughs> yeah, no, that's why I thought it was.
2: Yeah, and of course, your book, Frank, is actually a book the uh, based story. around your uh, ad- adventures with Frank Sidebottom. Well, I wanted to kind
1: of give, give my dues to the real Frank Sidebottom. I didn't want him, obviously, I didn't want him to get lost because the movie was this kind of amalgamation of Frank Sidebottom and Captain Beefheart and Daniel Johnson. And so, oh. I, so, I, so I wanted to write this little book. It's like a ladybird book, kind of, um, of the real story that inspired the movie. And it also includes stuff about the Shags, doesn't it, I think? Yes, the Shags.
0: So that's oh, good as I well. Oh, I about the Shags. Of course that's you true. do. Incredible, right? yes. Yeah. Um, it's the girls, isn't it? The young yeah. family.
1: Yeah, it, it, who who had never heard music. Basically, they, they, they were homeschooled um, by a crazy, um, abusive father and... Um, they never listened to music. They was kind of religious family and they weren't allowed to have a radio in the house. And then one day, their father announced, apropos of nothing, that, he, his, that his mother had had her palm read by a palmist. And the palmist had decreed that these daughters, these girls, were going to become the biggest girl group in America. So he made them rehearse over and over again for years in the basement. Uh, and the thing is, if you've never heard music and then you're forced to create music... What does the music sound like? Now if you want to, you could always play a little bit of Philosophy of the World here so people can hear what the music sounds like. Because finally he announced that they were ready and so they went to a studio and recorded this album. And the song Philosophy of the World is mind blowing. It's unbelievable.
0: It reminds me of a bit of a documentary that I saw last year called The Wolf Pack. Have you seen that? Oh, I haven't seen oh, that. I've heard pack of yet. it, yeah. but I haven't seen it. So, what The Wolf Pack is, is it's a group of about, oh God, I'm embarrassed. I can't remember exactly, but like seven brothers, and they all have really long hair. And they grew up in an apartment, uh, I think in Brooklyn, at the top of Brooklyn or the bottom of Manhattan, in the projects, the housing projects. Yeah. And their father. It's lowly sad,
1: I think. Pardon? I think it was the Lower East Side.
0: Oh, yes, it is the Lower East Side, thank you. Well, how can we trust anything you say? (laughs) Hypocrite. I'm a hypocrite. Um, Uh,
2: Our our New York friend,
0: John Ronson. (laughs) (laughs) He's a true New Yorker. New Yorker. (laughs) So they were growing up in this uh, flat in the Lower East Side and their father was this incredibly authoritarian, definitely, like, not grounded in reality at all and he wouldn't let them leave the house. They would leave the house maybe once a year and they would oh Robin oh, do you know that it's to... Mark Steele I forgot to turn my phone Robin's five. phone's Hang going on. and he's trying with no, his I'm tiny thumb I'm
2: trying to record a podcast with John Ronson and Josie Long why would you ring me now
0: look at him name dropping
2: can I call you back when we've finished recording this very look important podcast dropping. Josie is trying to tell us badly about a How documentary and misinform us about the contents
0: Put the phone down, Robin. Yeah. This is exactly the sort of thing. I'm that off Robin, now, Mark. I'll
2: speak to you later. Bye,
0: Robin. Did a ten minutes set on stage, bemoaning how young people <laughs> use their phones. No, I don't. I've looked, never done no, that. I know. I'm no, I'm really kidding. No, that's again, <laughs> <don't>
2: you misinterpreting <laughs> my work. No, no. <laughs> you misinterpret <laughs> so, the Wolf Pack. Uh, you it, misinterpret. So yeah. anyway, you said the, wolf, the wolf Pack pa- is set in Venice in the 19th anyway century. their
0: father would for some reason get them to make home movies they would make quite a lot of uh, home movies and then they all their only access to the outside world was through film so they started to make their own films mimicking films and it's again that sort of weird thing of like if you're completely deprived f- of like you know interacting with culture in a regular way mm. what then do you think it is Yeah, how do you it sounds like it sounds like it's somewhere
2: <laughs> between Rushmore and Room
0: <laughs> it is it really is <laughs> It really is. It's it, very good. Yeah. Well, it's a bit like it's, it's somewhere between uh, the Michel Gondry one. What's that one with the Sweding? Oh. oh. And Def's uh, in it, looking absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Not,
2: not the science of sleep. Uh,
0: uh, be kind, rewind. Yeah, it's be kind, okay. rewind
2: meets the room, guys. <laughs> but that was <well>, that's an <laughs> yeah. interesting because the other one is what well, would that a documentary? Uh, the documentary about the uh, the party clown who uh, then it oh turns capturing, out, the capturing the Friedman capturing oh, the wow. Friedman is another yeah. one where that going into the minds of a family and then. Mm
1: -hmm. I I was was, was thinking when you said that of one of my favourite documentaries, which is The Devil and Daniel Johnson, which Frank was completely, the movie Frank was totally inspired by, where, you know, his altered reality wasn't an abusive parent, but severe bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. But he had incredible songwriting talent and it's so interesting to kind of see the clash between his talent and his disorder and yes. how sometimes the things work together beautifully and then sometimes it just smashed into each other and everything exploded. Yes.
2: Well, the opening of that film where it was actually not at the opening but I think the, the, um, the makers of it said they weren't going to bring up the plane crash Right, where Daniel Johnson. Basically, they were flying back from. I think was it North.
1: Yeah, or south his by dad was a, something like that. Yeah, his dad was a light, uh Had a, was a pilot, and the two of them were um, in a plane. Can I tell the story? Because yeah, didn't. okay, uh, cause they were in a plane together. Just him and his dad. And in the middle of it, Daniel Johnson had like an episode and became convinced that Casper, the friendly ghost, was trying to hijack the plane. So he took the key out of the ignition in the plane, and his father had to crash land. The yeah, basically
2: threw the key out of the the and he, yeah. and he knew how to crash land it by going directly down into the the pines. That was it, wasn't right, it? To, yeah. to crash effective, you're going to survive. And so, but anyway, let's, but let's can get, I just say yes, one thing sorry. before we move on?
1: There's when his father tells that story in the documentary, The Devil in Dana Johnson. He he starts to cry, remembering that story, and that really inspired actually the last scene of Frank. Um, when Frank meet, when we meet Frank's parents. Mm
2: so it's that was that what i want to know is what what did you think in terms of what frank's uh like you know what the problem was did you did you imagine were you being very specific in thinking what his diagnosis would as someone who has you know through the the psychopath test and in Mm -hmm. other work as well and you've gone into looking at different forms of kind of mental illness were you you thinking very specifically about i wonder how someone like frank would be diagnosed
1: well it's funny you should say that because uh, during one of the drafts i became i became like convinced that i had to know exactly what he had and I had to and so I started reading up a lot on bipolar disorder and agoraphobia and schizophrenia and I was trying to decide and an obsessive compulsive disorder uh which I kind of know a lot about anyway and I um and then I said all this to the director Lenny and Lenny said no it's not that kind of movie you we don't have to do that um and so it became vaguer and I don't know, what do you think, good good or bad decision?
2: Well, I, I was only thinking that, that in terms of as a story, in terms yeah. of a story that is at times, you know, funny and is very moving and has is a tremendous uh, conclusion to it as well, uh-huh. um, that uh, it doesn't matter to me, but I wonder whether now there are people who will the possibility of going on a high horse go go but what, what is it what's yeah. he trying to represent and that you can then be i wondered if you did have any problems with people who reacted to it and said that uh, you needed to be more specific and they, they're they demanding a kind of education from the narrative right
1: no that never happened but we but me and lenny did have that conversation and i remember at the time thinking are you sure you know you are you sure it's okay for this to be some sort of kind of invented mental illness um, which it would never be that like, truly invented because there's always going to be elements mm. of bipolar disorder in there. There's always going to be elements of agoraphobia and OCD and anxiety was... and depression. Um, but but Lenny was very um, sure about that. It was like it's not that kind of movie. I, Lenny was seeing this as a kind of mythological movie. I think it's like almost like a kind of dreamscape, mm. and that's why. So he wasn't. So he wasn't saying that to be kind of callous. He he had a he had his reason for saying that.
0: But I would say, in terms of watching the film, that yeah. in some ways making it slightly broader or slightly vaguer means that more people who perhaps would you know have their own mental health issues would be able to identify with certain facets of it a little bit Mm. more to make it slightly less specific means that if you did have you know a certain type of thing you'd be able to like if there was something there you identified with it it'd be easier to connect with it yes yeah that's true because uh, from you know for me like if it was constantly said, well, this is a very specific condition that this person has, and you didn't have that condition, you'd be like, All oh, right, okay. I don't have that on am outside of it. Whereas if it's more like this person has these things they are trying to manage and deal with, mm. it's a lot more, I don't know, more easy for more people to yeah. then again it might yeah. come
2: back to that thing Who's, uh, we were talking uh, I was talking with someone the other day about who is dealing with uh, oh my god what was she dealing with she, she's a, a, a psychiatrist and um, she said that sometimes there can be so much time spent going what is it, what is it, what is it mm. without actually going what do we do about it said it's a little yeah. bit like someone coming in with a broken leg and going well let, now how did you break it now let's go through this again go, just we yeah. need to work out how to walk again and get the leg better go, no 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 let's keep working back and i think because when you were talking about all the you know the polemic in uh, like with with psychotherapists i find it quite interesting i I was doing a documentary i talked to two uh psychotherapists who had totally different takes on uh comedy and the use of comedy not not just by professional comedians i mean generally with jokes and one of them said if you're still making a joke uh about a situation then it means you haven't come to terms with the situation hmm. and the other psychotherapist said I don't see that as a problem at all you can make jokes about things but also understand their gravity like I would think I said to you about the fact that when my mum died uh, you know, nearly two months ago now I did a gig a little bit you know it's about a month afterwards and I did hmm. put in some jokes about it, but it wasn't like me going this protects me it's, it's almost like sometimes you can go you're p- partly claiming don't yeah. I don't know, but I'm I find that interesting as well. Yeah.
0: When I first got to uni, I would always make jokes that I thought were really funny about the situation I had just come out of in my house with my family. So, uh, God, it's a funny start. Um So, because the situation when I was a teenager in my house was quite intense and quite difficult so then I would make like really blasé jokes about like domestic violence or alcoholism or whatever mm. and uh, in particular but that were like about my upbringing and we, around my friends at university and I'd be like ha 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 like when my stepdad blah 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 ha 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 and I thought it was hilarious and swaggery <laughs> and it's only now that I look back and I'm like of course I was being like that I had no idea how awful that was mm. do you know what I mean I, I was huh. nowhere near over it I was somebody that thought that that was hilarious and I thought that shocking all my friends who'd had maybe slightly less disruptive uh, childhoods was really funny and clever. And Mm. now I'm like, I don't do that kind of thing anymore because I feel like I have dealt with it and I'm able to sort of let that be. And I can definitely see that as a humour, as a reflex, as as it's a way of getting through things and it is a way of... It's like a holding pen. Mm. It's like, this is how I'm behaving with it now. And then later on, you're through that. I think only with... What, what, what I'm really saying is with difficult traumatic things, not not everything, yeah. and I don't believe that completely about humour, but that's my
2: idea I was talking to one comedian who uh, suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder after quite a kind of, you know, major incident and uh, he's been to lots of different psychiatrists and psychotherapists and uh, one of them went, do you know what I think we can get all of this sorted, and he went hey, yeah, hey, hey, yeah, not all of it <laughs> said, this is how I make my living well, this is I, was, I think, yeah. there is that idea that somehow you can have enough therapy that now life is only contentment and sometimes you meet those people and you go whoa not has yeah. happening here is it <laughs> well isn't there is a
1: story in the oliver sax book uh the man who mistook his wife for a hat which is just that it's about a guy comes to him with tourette syndrome and he he treats his tourette syndrome and the guy comes back and says, well, you, you've, you've cured me and I'm really pissed off. And, and, the guy, <laughs> and Oliver Sacks said, why? And he said, well, because I'm a drummer at weekends and the Tourette's like, really helped my drumming um, and made me a great drummer. And now I've lost my Tourette's, I've lost my drumming skill. And so Oliver Sacks did some sort of magic with the medication or whatever, whereby he could be cured of his Tourette's during weekdays and but have it at weekends. It's well, something like that. I might have misremembered I think, I think some of that. But it's something like that. Those or lines.
2: Anthropologist on Mars or one of his books. I, uh-huh. I do remember one where there's definitely someone going, Well, you've overcured me. Brilliant. Now, <laughs> I can't. now I'm having an awful time. But yeah. this.
0: That's could... the thing with ADHD. I, I often thought that I had adult ADHD because of just how ridiculous I am. And like, I felt like that gave me my creativity in my life yeah. and like made me the person I was. But now I think, I yeah. know, ah, you just could work in a slightly better way. Yeah, I used to. Yeah, think, I used to
1: think. I used to think about smoking. Really? Yeah, I can't write if I don't smoke.
0: And then did you stop smoking and keep writing?
1: And you're yeah, like, oh, totally.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, this
2: is because you brought up Oliver Sacks, uh-huh. uh, and Oliver Sacks, of course, died uh, towards the end of last year, and left an incredible body work. And and to me, always comes across as someone with uh, a, a wonderful kind of depth or height of humanity. Mm. And what, So you must have read his works because this seems yeah. to me, again, in the way that you have to, in a lot of your work, go into the minds of people, whether it's in the psychopath test, whether it's in, you know, them, which yeah, I know, you know, of all the of books, it, really. but all especially the new ones. So, so
1: you've been publicly shamed. There's a lot of trying to get inside people's heads to work out why they're behaving the way that they do. So when
2: did that start for you? When did you, when did you actually feel this was more than you just toying around, sitting at the bar, looking at someone and going, oh, I reckon I know why they're doing that way. When did it become... Mm-hmm. you know, an obsession, enough of an obsession to become a living.
1: Well, you know what popped into my mind when you said that was uh, years and years ago I made this documentary about David Icke who believes that giant blood-drinking lizards secretly rule the world and then the anti defamation league and the anti racist action are convinced that when he says giant blood drinking lizards secretly rule the world he's using code and what he actually means is Jews. To which David Icke said, No honestly I mean lizards. And anyway, so I made this documentary where I saw David Icke's battle with the people on our side of the fence, the anti racists. There's this really interesting pressure cooker like as they get as they get more irrational so do our responses towards them and I mm-hmm. thought that was so interesting so I made the film and I was pretty proud of the film and then shortly afterwards I, I saw Louis Theroux and he said to me and I've I just did this thing with Louis this week at Leicester Square Theatre and Louis said to me oh, if I'd made that film I would have like talked to his wife and tried to work out like you know who he is like what's going on inside his head And this was, like, maybe 1997. And I was thinking, oh, no, I'm not interested in it. I'm interested in, like, the kind of metaphoric nature of the battle between Louis and the ADL. Um, So it wasn't so much then. And then I remember when that book... This is my book, Them. And when it came out... That's
2: your first one, isn't it? yeah, Yeah,
1: yeah. And then... Um, but there was a crappy one slightly before it.
2: What was the crappy one before that? Because you you were tweeting about that the other day and I was trying to remember Uh, what your non-books might be. Of your My non-book
1: was called Clubbed Class and I wrote it when I was in my sort of mid-twenties and it was just a silly travel book that sold like about ten copies. I remember them was nominated for the first book award, uh, the Guardian first book award, and then some fucker told them. (laughs) Yeah, so she phoned me up like the head of the award panel because I was shortlisted and she said, is it true that you wrote a book? Before them. And I went, what? It? I mean, it looks like a book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you'd call it a book. I was disqualified. If you check the
2: reviews, many of them didn't consider it to be a book. So, therefore, <laughs> no. I...
1: God, I was being punished for having to write a stocking filler because it was the only money I was being paid in my early 20s. So...
2: Um... I don't think Andrew Collins really considers his book about Friends Reunited to be his greatest <laughs> yeah. work. The, not uh, to mention... That doesn't Ma- seem to get republished very
1: much anymore. Yeah, not to mention Matt Haig's many books about kind of consumerism and stuff, unless there's two Matt Haig's out there. Um... I, could they? I mean, they could be. So anyway, so then then, Them came out. And I remember Adam Curtis, my friend, who's always been kind of my advisor, saying to me, this is a philosophical book about paranoia. And I never really thought of it that way. And and, and I think it started to grow after that. I think The Men's Goats was just a silly kind of romp. It was like a comedy about the war. But then with the psychopath test, it became like utterly essential that it was all about what's going on inside people's heads and then with the new one so you've been publicly shamed even more so
2: so what were you reading before because we haven't talked yet about any of your kind of list of books when you were reading you know as Mm -hmm. a teenager what were the the books? Were you know like those books that you read? And you go, this is me. I think this is me, or this, is oh, me. Yeah, or this yeah, is yeah. what I'm going to become. You know that bit where when mm. you first read Huntress Thompson, you go, I imagine I'll become someone driving through the desert with a Samoan lawyer <laughs> yeah, eventually, exactly. or, or the outsider. I imagine I'll kill someone on a beach after misremembering or being <laughs> uncertain of when my mother died. You know that. So uh, what what were those teenage books for you? Well, one of them you
1: just mentioned, uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. <laughs> well, it for our
2: generation, happen. that yeah. is uh, that there is th- everything changes at that point. Yeah. An older brother or sister has the book, and you go, What is that book on the high shelf? Who is this Hunter S. Thompson? Yeah. yeah. And with the Ralph Steadman uh, illustrations, which are, by the way, just to record, I'd come if we ever recommended this uh, on this show before. Obviously, all the books of Ralph Steadman, whether it's uh, The Big I Am uh, or I, Leonardo, but the documentary that was made about him working, I don't know if you've seen it, uh, Johnny Depp's in it and and he's kind of interviewing him a lot but there's just this beautiful moment where he starts off and he goes this is basically how I start a painting and he's just got this paintbrush just great big thick I I presume it's probably Indian ink or whatever Uh and he just hurls it at the canvas and he goes I've no idea what it's going to be yet uh, and then he just spent, and, and on this he makes it, and uh, eventually he makes it into this kind of like ramshackle dog. And he goes, <laughs> "Oh, I don't like that at all." <laughs> but what I love is that artistic uh-huh. idea of going. Don't sit there going, well, "How am I going to start?" How am I start? And uh-huh. then go, "Oh, oh, yeah. it's ended up either being this thing of beauty or this ramshackle dog."
0: Uh, no, but I was going to say, and also quite a lot of the time, what I think about trying to make anything creative is, it doesn't really matter what you think you ought to be making or you think you want to make. You'll make what you make. Mm. you'll try your hardest to make what you think you ought to make, but it won't be that.
1: Yeah. Well, I just, when you said that, I was reminded of, uh, I just heard an interview with Quentin Tarantino, either on Brett Easton Ellis or Mark Maron, one of the two. And he said that there's a scene in The Hateful Eight, which I haven't seen, where a cup of coffee is poisoned. And he said when he wrote that scene in the screenplay, he had no idea who had poisoned the cup Ah. of coffee. Yeah. That's really interesting. That's
0: exciting. That's like Enid Blyton always said, she didn't know where her stories were going to (laughs) go. And you can really tell. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So what did you really...
1: Yeah, sorry, so going back to the Huntress. So So Huntress Thompson, Fear and Loving Las Vegas, PJ O'Rourke, Holidays in Hell... Um,
2: now that's interesting because again, that would be basically they're all Picador books or palettes yeah. aren't they? Uh, they, they? These were the books that when you would see that carousel yes. as a fifteen-year-old. Every book inside there will be magical, you know, the things like uh, totally. Blood and Guts. You know, uh, also
1: um, Tom Wolfe's New Journalism. That's another Picador book.
0: So, so even when you were younger, did you want to be a journalist when you were a young teenager?
1: I'm, I'm, I must have because I was reading all of those books, um, sort of subconsciously. I wanted to get there. Fuck out of Cardiff and have adventures, and so journalism, I guess, seemed like the, like the most kind of practical way of having adventures. Like I wasn't going to become an adventurer, like a member of the Royal Geographical Society or something. <laughs> so, um, uh, so yeah, journalism seemed like the obvious thing. I was, I was definitely inspired by all of those people, and um, yeah, and and in fact, years later, then when my when I got a literary agent and he said, so which which publishers do you imagine being with? I just instantly said Picador because they were all Picador books and I've been with Picador ever since.
2: Yeah, Yeah, there's a whole load where, I was talking with Alan Moore about this, there's certain, uh, like Mm from the 70s, when you see uh, Paladin or Abacus, Mm-hmm. Who like the, uh, the the sacred mushroom and the cross, which is the guy who came up with the idea that Jesus is? is I think I haven't read it yet. I got a hold of a copy of it, but it's kind of the whole Christianity comes from really a mushroom cult of yeah. uh, hallucinations and stuff. And uh, it's much, but it's not like Eric von Daniken. This is kind of you know it, it, a- anthropology, mm-hmm. but going well. I think these mushrooms grow there, and then and, and all of that stuff. The excitement of that's,
0: that's like when yeah. you first find out about the witchcraft and the um, what's that. The the Fungal disease that people had from eating the bread, oh, yes. and then you find out that the consequences were sort of certain particular types of hallucination and night terror, and it's like, Oh, that explains all of the hysteria about witchcraft, it's just moldy bread. And everyone was like, Well, it can't be the bread, it must be the women. <laughs> 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 That's
1: how I think. Uh, um, so okay, the... okay, do I tell you who else? I yes, ask. yeah, okay. Yeah. So, that so those three I definitely learned like the art of adventuring from.
2: But did you think you were going to be? Uh, rather than now being someone who you you meet people and you follow people and you go mm-hmm. inside their minds, did you imagine that you would kind of be? Because we saw a lot know. of that in journalism, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, where you yeah you are the you, you are the centre You're of the attention, star.
1: yeah, and all of those people. Actually, that's not true. Peter Rock and Huntress Thompson were most certainly the kind of central attention in their stories. But in Tom Wolfe's New Journalism, you you meet a lot of writers who didn't do that. I mean, Gator Lees didn't really do that. These, like, amazing stories about hanging out with um, Frank Sinatra. And then Thy Neighbour's Wife, which is, like, this incredible, sprawling book about the history of sex and, and um, uh, kind of key parties, playboy... Um and, and he's barely in this until the very very end when you see him, you meet him for the first time at the very very end, naked on a beach. He's huh. like he's totally gone native and he's like become the thing that he was writing about. Um, but he's barely in the story. It's Joe so Esther. So like an
2: Alan Yentob Imagine documentary. Yeah, it I, appears yeah. that actually someone else has made it, but at the end, always a shot of him naked <laughs> on are, the beach with the closing the credits. Yeah,
0: yeah. I, I've been really enjoying reading Private Eye. Finally, like I've been subscribing for a year, and now I read it all. And just the fact that every time I think of Alan and Tom, I think of uh, calling him Alan Botany. It makes me so happy. I'm like, yes, yes, Pravita, yes, yes. Well, that's (laughs) another
2: moment of that that moment where you go, I'm very mature now because um, rather than calling the author A. N. Wilson, I always call him Anne Wilson. (laughs) (laughs) It's 1986. (laughs) Um, Yeah. No, no, tell us John more. still. yeah. yeah. Okay. He didn't even need to say tell us more. He was about to tell us
1: more. Oh, well, thank oh. you. We'll
2: have we're to cut out the tell us more we're now. We're very excited to have
1: you on. <laughs> well, I'm trying to remember who else was in Tom Wolfe's New Journalism. I think Joe Estherhouse, who went on to write mm. those terrible... Well, good movies at first, right? I'm trying to remember. He wrote Music Box, the Costa Galvarez Oh, Costa Gabbrous, yeah. Yeah, but then he wrote Showgirls. So he oh, pulled, wow. Open <laughs> See, Showgirls, so really I like, think... Is, yeah. uh, I remember <laughs> being...
2: Uh, Uh, My wife and I were going to go see that. And then a friend of hers went, but that film's really sexist. I can't believe you're going. Mm -hmm. And I went, it's a Hollywood film. There's, it's just, I think it's going to be more, you know, kind of, I mean, I, I, I think it has become, it's such a ridiculous film.
1: Uh, I've, I've never seen it. It, it. is
2: genuinely, utterly, uh, you know, the Karl McLaughlin in it, uh, mm. the, it's kind of all about Eve. It's it's mm. a, basically, it's a naked version of all about Eve. <laughs> uh, and I, I think, because I'm a big, I just bought yesterday, actually, um, Paul Verhoeven's book uh, about Jesus. Oh, wow. Well. Uh, he's written a book uh, all about Jesus, uh, and it's just called Jesus of Nazareth. And it's actually, I think, uh, he went on a course and he's got his ideas about Jesus. You think, Paul Verhoeven's got some ideas about Jesus. Let's make that into a film. <laughs> and uh, and he's he's being interviewed by, I forget now, the guy who uh, wrote his um, kind of Faber and Faber, a uh, Paul Verhoeven book, but his biographer has interviewed him about Jesus. Ten chapters of Paul Verhoeven, of Robocop, uh, Flesh and Blood and the like, talking about Jesus. It's going to be fun, oh, I think.
1: Excellent. Anyway, okay. sorry. So before he uh, just asked about those things, he was also a great new journalist who would write these kind of, you know, these people sort of redefining journalism, like mm. turning it into narrative journalism. I think they all had the kind of similar ambition that I have, which is you want as much written richness out of nonfiction as from a novel. Like you want to go through like life changing experiences like in them. And the psychopath, in all of my books, actually, with the, probably the exception of The Minister goats, Goats, um, I go through as big an arc, as big a real-life change as I would if I was like a fictional character in a novel.
0: And do you... Do you really mean that in your life? Do you feel like your books have profoundly changed your life each time?
1: Totally. And sometimes they change it back again. Sometimes <laughs> I go through like an arc. So in the psychopath test, I become like drunk with my psychopath spotting powers, like convinced that I can spot psychopaths everywhere. And then I realise that i kind of turned me psychopathic you know this conviction it was kind of psychopathic in itself and i go back to into a more kind of Ardy langy place um, where I sort of start to reject labels a bit but all that was real like none of that was fake and in them, I became like completely convinced that the Bilderberg group were chasing me because the Bilderberg group were chasing me. Wow. Yeah. Have they stopped now? Have they chilled out? They of stopped me? now. <laughs> <laughs> how funny. do
2: they chase then? So give us a little bit of the background of how do you know uh, that the, the Bilderberg group are after you?
1: Okay. So I tried to infiltrate a Bilderberg meeting. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> and as I left, I started to get followed by a kind of by a dark green lancia. And I phoned at the British Embassy and I said, I'm being followed, this is in Portugal, I'm being followed by a dark green Lancia belonging to the Bilderberg Group. And the woman on the other end of the phone went, oh! and then she went, go on. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then and I said, I, I stopped my car on the side of a deserted lane and he stopped his car right behind me. I said, can you imagine just how chilling this is, especially because I'm from England and I'm not used to being spied on? So she said... And
0: did she go, ha, huh, that's what you think. <laughs> <don't like> <laughs> she, said
1: the good no, she said the good news is if you know you're being followed, they're probably just trying to intimidate you. The dangerous ones would be those that you don't know are following you. Bloody yeah. hell. Yeah, so I thought, well, what if these ones are the dangerous ones and I just happen to be naturally good at spotting, <laughs> spotting oh, them.
0: <laughs> they would definitely want you to see them if they stopped behind you. You're even arrogant in your paranoia, aren't you?
2: <laughs> arrogant, paranoid. <Yeah. laughs> John
1: Ronson. <laughs> but I just remember I gave a talk like, I'm going back years now, this is all in my book Them and when it came out I started giving talks about my books and I gave a talk to the Skeptic Society in London and um, the London Skeptics and during the Q&A somebody said to me, so you were figuratively chased by men in dark glasses and I was like, no, I was not figurative. I was actually chased by men in dark glasses. <laughs> so who is, now
2: the Bilderberg group, because the, see, there's lots of different definitions depending on who, the, you, yeah. when you say the Bilderberg group, you mean? Um,
1: well, this sort of powerful, I mean what they actually are which is this powerful kind of globalist group of bankers Media moguls, corporate chiefs, Heinz, Nokia, Smith Kline Beach. Sounds like the
0: worst gig audience in the world. <laughs> right.
1: And they always meet once a year in a five star hotel with golfing facilities. And according to the conspiracy theorists, that's where they secretly rule the world. They did
2: it Watford once, didn't they? I was yeah, yeah, at a hotel I stayed in once. Yeah, no, I remember uh, going on on the train, yeah, and, and having a look out and going, oh, that'll be the Bilderberg group. Yeah, but yes. And a guy in a Green Lantern got on the train. Ha! <laughs> yeah. Oh, Almost <what's laughs> in the hotel. Sorry?
1: What was the name of the hotel?
2: I can't remember, but it's... Uh, I'll tell you what, if you're going towards London from Watford Junction, just you leave Watford Junction, look to your left, you'll yeah, see it. It's fine. a very fancy hotel. <laughs> but
0: this is where I always feel like you don't need conspiracy theories because those are wealthy, powerful people. They have wealth and power. That means they are wealthy and powerful and will yeah. control things. And You they don't need, need to reason. lizard it. Yeah, exactly. You don't need to say they're shady. You just need to go accept the fact that wealthy people have all the... Well, not mm. all, but wealthy people have most of the power.
1: Exactly. So this this is why what...
0: then
2: do conspiracy theorists fuck it up all the time yes. by making it just stupid. Yeah, they have yeah. to put and, the lizards and, and in. Bit where you go... It's a little <laughs> bit like, you know, when, when people come up with different theories like kind of, uh, you know, pseudo-scientific theories mm-hmm. about why there's life on Earth or about the beginning of the universe. Very rarely are they as fulfilling or as exciting... As these banal things imagined by human beings.
1: Yeah, I remember Alex Jones. I remember because I showed it on stage last night. I remember <laughs> Alex Jones um, saying of David Icke's lizard theory, it's like a turd in the punch bowl. You've got, you've, got, <laughs> you've got a lovely punch, like fruit punch, ice, rum, and then David Icke comes along and takes a giant turd in it and then nobody wants to drink out of the punch bowl.
2: But is he, is Alex Jones, <laughs> is he basically do it uh, it's a career move because when you see him on some of the shows, like when he was over here, you just thought, yeah, 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 it's all very melodrama and you're mm-hmm. all jumping up and down. And you've created a sequence which will now be shown, you know, which is available yeah. on YouTube. and you get. A, uh, do, yeah. is any
1: Does any of it mean anything? Alex is a little bit of a turd in a punch bowl, I think. I, and I'll, that's I'll, what I was thinking is
2: he's annoyed because yeah. he's going, well, I've built all this up I've, and I'm ready yeah. to do my I great was, big turd in the punch bowl. Yeah. Bloody David oh, Icke's just done a little Englishy turd, not like <laughs> my, my great big American turd with all stuff in it.
0: This is what I want to ask you. Um, it's a bit of a curveball. Is what? this about his motions? Are
2: you going to suddenly turn this into a <laughs> Gillian do do McKeith podcast?
0: <laughs> what do you read for fun and for pleasure?
1: Uh, I just listened to the audiobook of uh, Bridget Christie's A Book For Her, which I thought brilliant. Was brilliant a choice. Yeah.
0: And you do a show with Mae Higgins and she's just released a book, hasn't she?
1: Absolutely brilliant book called uh, Off You Go. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so funny nerdy funny nerdy people but you know?
2: are any of those for fun because that's what i think is that there's a point where once you're just looking around going i want to learn everything about everything and i want to uh-huh. see everything yeah. that even the books that are for fun you cuz i was wondering when you are was there... is there a point in your existence now where there is always a kind of homunculus in a trilby on a typewriter, inside your brain, uh, that as you walk around New York where you live now, as you walk around London, wherever you might be, there is, you know, or the Sam Spade monologue of, you know, as John Ronson left his, you know, his brownstone. And and he saw a man behaving erratically. And he you know, everything
1: There was a silence, John said. Uh, I... um... Uh, I, I think I definitely like... There's always a little bit of narcissism going on in terms of the books that I read. So but no, no instance,
2: but I mean yeah, about narcissism. I mean, what you actually... Mm-hmm. Uh, th- everything yeah. becomes the possibility of a story. That every, yeah. You are constantly seeking a story.
0: That scares the shit out of me, because I was thinking, well, that's being a writer, isn't it? That's my whole life. And then you yeah. were like, yes, that is narcissism. I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> oh,
1: God. <laughs> well, I was thinking more tonal, actually. I was thinking like, when I listened to someone like, like Bridget Christie's audio book... Um, that's having help with my work, too, because it's reminding me that funny is good. Like, don't lose the ability to be funny. Mm. Uh, So everything teaches me something. But, you know, I don't do that, what you just said, because I'm much more picky about what stories I will do Mm. these days. Stories have to, like, really massively sell themselves to me. It's because each time I do a story that that world's closed off for me because because the mystery like the the genuine mystery and curiosity is what is, is the wind behind my sails? So I can't do conspiracies anymore because I kind of get that now. Yeah. Um, I can't do public shaming on so- <laughs> public shaming anymore because I understand what's going on there now. So, so the older I get and the more stories I do, the harder it is for me to find a story because there's fewer mysteries in the world. Which is when you update problem, the
2: public shame book, though, because I, I read it when it first came out. What was it about? April last year in the I, UK. I already and-
1: did update the paperback. I wrote this long ten thousand word new chapter for the paperback about everything about all the noise after the book came out. Um, so I have already updated it and it could definitely continue to be updated, but I, but I won't do that. Right. But I think if you if you're the kind of writer who cares about, you know, who who is propelled on by solving mysteries, inevitably it's going to get harder and harder as you get older because there's, you know, you there's fewer things that you don't understand.
2: What do you at the moment? Well, what are <laughs> the books that you have read where you've gone? Well, that was one I should have done. And you know when you oh, see yeah. it done so, comp- you know I, I, I imagine you are still drawn towards mm-hmm. what would have once been called new journalism. What is your, that is still your
1: yeah. Gosh, I'm sure there are. I think I was jealous of that book where the guy goes and meets all everybody who's ever walked on the moon. Um, oh, moon dust. Moon isn't dust. Yeah. yeah, I was. I was jealous of that book. Um, I was in terms of documentaries. I was very jealous of The Devil and Daniel Johnstone. I don't think I will ever make anything as good as The Devil in Daniel Johnstone. I think it's the best documentary I've ever seen. Um, God. That
2: Moondust book, is quite, it's a great book. and its um, yeah. I remember that when Neil Armstrong died, what, probably four years ago, was it? I think about, it was August uh, four years ago, and uh, four or five years ago. And walking along the south bank in the evening it was a harvest moon so it was, you know the moon looked really big it was a wonderful thing yeah. you know to see and then just going oh my god there's going to be a time very possibly where there are no longer any living people on this uh mm. earth yeah who stood on the moon that so there was this brief window of people standing on you know non-earth naturally mm. and then it's 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 gone again
0: will they never do it again do you think
2: well, the moon, the, the trouble with the moon is I think they've gone, well, we're not really sure what else there is to get from the moon, yeah. what else we can learn from the moon. But it does feel like... Mars then becomes this oh, interesting me.
1: thing. But I does... watched The Martian on the plane coming over. Is it any good? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And then what's interesting, it's all about kind of winning with science up in space, um, and you know, with grit and determination and scientific knowledge. And then I paused the video, um, went to the toilet, and the toilet wouldn't flush. So I pressed the flush like repeatedly like maybe three or four times and then it flushed and then i felt like matt damon
0: very much just like oh no you've reminded me then
1: I wouldn't
2: get out of the toilet because I thought well I fancy potatoes so I didn't flush it and I built up my own shit but that was there was uh, um, uh, Kevin Fong who's great who's uh, an expert on space medicine in fact just did the Royal Institution Christmas Lectures uh, 2015 Hmm. he apparently watched The Martian with some astronauts all of whom went well we wouldn't have survived on Mars which is great you know that thing to know where oh I didn't know that what a handy film should we go there
0: I watched a really brilliant uh, documentary on a plane that you've just reminded me of, which was called My Life in China. Have you heard of that? No. I think it was at, it was at a festival. I don't know which one. Um, and it's about a guy who is second generation. Uh, his dad is Chinese. He was born and brought up in uh, Los Angeles. And it's about him and his dad going back to China to see if his dad wants to retire there and go back there to yeah. sort of end his days. And his dad moved from China to the States, Via defecting He swam From the Chinese mainland To Macau Wow Yeah incredible Um, His uncle Defected to Hong Kong And his two aunts Stayed in China And it's about How their four lives Panned out And what it means To emigrate And what success means And about what family means And I found it Such a beautiful Such a lovely Warm, interesting documentary about you know what was it called again? How one's life is led. Um, my life in China. Right, really good. Yeah. The
2: um, so what are the other? We'll just end off. In terms of your, we talked about it. David Bowie's top hundred. Yeah. Your uh, books that you feel the book you're most likely to go I must buy that uh, every time you see it say, in, in uh, I'll say thrift store to translate <laughs> it to your new <laughs> Americans you. but uh, every time you see it second hand shop thrift store you you would go um, oh I'm going to buy that because I'm going to pass it on like I find things mm-hmm. like The Little Prince or uh, Richard Feynman books there there are certain there's a brilliant book by uh, we might have talked about it before uh, Myla Goldberg called Bee Season uh-huh. which is uh, a about a kind of um, high scoring intellectual Jewish family, and the daughter is the one who just doesn't really, she isn't, but she then it turns out has this innate ability to spell, which is discovered during the spelling bee. And every time I see yeah. that book, I buy it because uh, I just, you know, so those kind of things. What are yours?
1: Uh, well, the one that popped into my head straight away was uh, Jonathan Coe's What a Carve-Up. Have either of you read that? I still no. haven't read oh, it. It's on my just, shelf. You would love that book so What's much. it about? Okay, so it's, it's amazing. It's basically about... It's set in Thatcher's Britain, and it's basically about this fictional family called the Windshaws who are responsible for, like all the evils in Britain. So <laughs> one of the Winshaws is kind of Katie Hopkins. Uh, another Winshaw is an arms dealer. Another Winshaw is an intensive farmer. And it's basically about this journalist who is um, commissioned to write a biography of the Winshaw family. Uh, and I won't tell you anymore. It's so great. What a Carver really by Jonathan fun. Coe. Yeah, it, it, um, I mean, it's really funny and kind of Dickensian. But what it taught me was something that yeah, which you probably I, I had to learn this from a book I think you knew this instinctively which is that there was um, that those of us down here our lives are being affected by the decisions of those people up there and that's kind of what the book's about and it's such an obvious point but, it, but honestly that book politicised me when I read it um, I thought my god the windshaws are are pulling the strings and affecting my life down here that's what's so wonderful about the book
2: because yeah. you live in in America now And watching Uh this build-up to... I mean, there is something really... uh, It's absurd, in fact, to watch the the cult around Donald Trump... Mm. Uh, there is a, a. I was just on the train today. I thought I think that is the time that I will actually just go and buy some old air raid shelter and go and live in it. Not because there's going yeah. to be the third world war. I mean, literally. I just I don't know if I can manage to live in it. Should that be a possibility yeah. in even a society where he would become the main presidential candidate?
1: Well, this is my here's my terror. It the because um, it's a school of thought that like. You want Donald Trump to get the nomination because there's no chance he'll ever be president, and that's like handing the presidency to Hillary Clinton but, or Bernie Sanders. But um, my huge fear is that he gets the nomination, which is very soon, like, what, in a couple of weeks or mm-hmm. something, And then Hillary Clinton gets the nomination. Some terrible secret comes out about Hillary Clinton during the campaign. And suddenly, before you know it, Donald Trump's president. I don't think that's an impossibility.
2: So how do do you, as someone who's analysed a lot of, you know, kind of human thinking, that bit where you just go, this is too preposterous. I don't understand. I don't understand. Why do people believe this person is this thing? I mean, that moment where you just go, is it merely because, again, this kind of, this small number, you know, you can't, a mm. bit about conspiracy theories, mm. it's not even a conspiracy, there's a very small number of, of media outlets in terms of the number of individual owners, mm. and you go, these narratives where yeah. people buy into it, and that now Fox News can actually be, Fox News, of course, they're, they're, they've they're accidentally become the liberal elite, in some people's <laughs> <Yeah>. eyes, because <laughs> now, because Trump. Donald Trump's saying, I'm not going to go on that show, where some mm. people are going, what, so he's actually said, I'm, or, she was rude to me last time, so I, as someone said, how's he going to deal with ISIS if he's going to throw his pram-? But those moments where you go, very quickly, the narrative changes. Oh, yeah, yeah. the mainstream. Yeah. Previously, yeah. We, we used to love Fox,
1: you know. Well, I was talking about this on stage with Adam Curtis last night. And he said, actually, I wasn't. Somebody during the Q&A, somebody said, what about Donald Trump? And Adam said, you may you know, not realise, but this happens often in American politics. And he said, William Randolph Hearst stood as a candidate.
0: Oh, the Rockefeller, right? Uh, Not what's his name? Uh, Nelson. Nelson Rockefeller oh, stood for okay. president. Right. Ford. Henry Ford's for president. Right. Yeah.
1: It's all similar. I mean, I don't know much and about And Henry Ford was a uh, big Ford... racist, wasn't yeah. he? he was oh, like yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. His book, uh, The International Jew, is, is, is as bad <laughs> From as... From the
0: title, I can imagine. <laughs> Fucking hell. Yeah. When I
2: mentioning Feynman, I still I was reading another book about him because I always enjoy it. And every time that I read that uh, when he was up for, I th- was it Columbia and Princeton? I can't remember, but one of the universities was out for him because they'd hit their Jewish quota. Oh, and that, to me, is <laughs> still a remarkable thing to read. That in right. the 90s, Nineteen thirties, nineteen thirty-six. Whatever it would have been. Yeah, you know, the universities. Well, you know, because the, they don't really fit in, so it's for their good. Oh, we can right. only have so many. No offense, that but
0: is... that does sound like mo- the modern way that, like, c- culture treats the casting of anything other than white men.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I suppose it is slightly different because yeah. it's an official <laughs> quota, and in many ways, you've belittled it with your uh, Stalinism again, Joseph. <laughs> no, I,
1: you I, know I mean, what? It's was, I, I, I'm, I'm world, afraid, yes. as, as as you said that. Um, I was thinking about what I did just before this podcast, which was I was at, I was on loose ends, and it was a room full of people, uh, and I just happened to notice that everybody in the room was white, except for Adrian Lester, who was, like, the only black person in the room, and I thought, God, there's still...
2: Who was meant to be on our podcast, but uh, the dates keep changing? So hopefully, eventually, we will have right. Adrian Lester on, but I don't know when. Yeah, Sorry. But so, yeah. so
1: yeah, so it did make me think. Actually, funny when you were saying that, I was thinking, well, there are. I've just watched what Jersey said. Thank that, you. It's nice quotas. to be backed up by
0: this. Well, no, it's a bit di- torn well, down thing is by is that
2: the, the. The quota can now be. I, I, I would agree. There is, you know, there are, obviously there's different areas of cultural dominance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but hope, I would call you it you discrimination know, as opposed to dominance. Well, well, well I suppose. It is. Well, discrimination comes through dominance. That's how you can do sure. it
0: fuck but Dominance still to me if has some uh, web meaning connections that aren't pejorative that's because you think.
2: always get caught up with semantics and you forget to pragmatically <laughs> who's that guy? view the uh, me it's uh, no, me no, no, and no. who's the, liberal who's media the guy of me? who wrote about the, me. the
0: meaning web you know the shades of meaning what was that? that was a book that I I read at university E.B. White Seven Shades of Meaning is um, that the one yeah E.B. Yeah. White's
2: uh, <laughs> The Meaning Web it's not E.B. E. White he wrote Charlotte's Web oh, Jesus God. Christ I dick you
0: know And I don't know
2: someone will tweet us won't they thank you
0: well if you could I remember it and it blew my mind about ambiguity about symbolism poetry and about the idea that words had all of these connotations to them that shifted that meant that you were culturally connected to some people and not others and that meant that your usage of certain words would inflame in some people oh my god i loved it it was like a feast (laughs) it's funny isn't it it's
2: weird that bit where in fact going back to the divided self reading that and any books which are the majority of books where humanity is always man it eventually becomes prick there's a certain point a certain change in your mentality where you go I'm sure there's another way of doing this mm-hmm. because yeah. it isn't useful and it, 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 it i mean then it was just that's the way it's not like there's any uh, but actually behind the author uh, themselves is not and he said himself uh the, uh the the but that's that all of those little things which mm-hmm. you you start to realize uh may- anyway going back to uh, so, uh, before loose ends, before mm-hmm. I mentioned Richard Farmer's Jewish quota, we were...
1: Talking about what, Curve Up, and books that you would buy in thrift? No, no,
2: we've moved further on. You, oh. you move for, for, to the next stage. Ah. Trent, what were you talking about? No, we, we, oh, well, what was God. what was it? it I've was, got another question. No, no, here. no, hang on, hang on, Donald hang on. Trump? I want to get back to that oh, thing. Trump, it was Donald Trump. Trump. That was it. we were talking about Ford, and you were saying Adam mm-hmm. Curtis. Oh yeah, thank you.
1: No, just that. So yes, yeah, that, so, that, so, that, was, that was it. That was his point. It was the, the, that was his point that basically this is not a new thing. This is something that happens over and over again in American politics.
0: It's quite so. relieving to hear that because one yeah. of the questions I was going to ask was, do you guys personally remember? This kind of thing happening before, in, like yeah. in your lifetime, because I know that, like, you've got 10, 15 years on me. <laughs> well, I mean, Reagan is a good so...
2: example in some ways, yeah. in terms of different because it's not about, um, but, Bush but, right, yeah, the, all, yeah, that all of those things are I kind mean, of strange. It's
1: more extreme than both, yeah, Reagan and Bush.
2: Though Reagan at the time, we've perhaps forgotten because even we were young then. Uh, uh-huh. uh, the one thing I always remember about that election was I must have just caught the end of the Sweeney. I wouldn't have been allowed to. I don't know why. Or maybe it was just before. And the Thames Television link man, who might have been Peter Marshall, who also quoted <laughs> Miss East Anglia, uh, he said, uh, Well, uh, from one Reagan and Carter to another. It's the Sweeney. Wow. Though technically, of course, Regan and Carter. Yeah, but, but still. there are certain conspiracy theorists <laughs> who say that uh, 1960s and 1970s cop, sh- cop shows foretell political futures. So the um, the books that you uh, um, would uh, recommend mm-hmm. for your favourite, the books that you feel have been the most influential, influential on you... Or-
1: I want to say this list of books. What a carpet by Jonathan Coe, as stated earlier. Slaughterhouse 5 by Kurt Vonnegut. Uh,
2: Bing! <laughs> Vonnegut mention. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's like nearly every one of the 16 or whatever we've recorded. And right. there's nothing wrong with that. No. That's no. great. We and weren't... there's also nothing
1: wrong with the fact that I chose the most obvious Kurt Vonnegut book too. It's
2: great. Yeah. I, I actually nearly bought it again today. I, I had 10 minutes spare in Chorley Wood. So I popped down to, I think it was the Dogs Trust charity shop. Might have been the other one. Uh-huh. And I did that thing where, you know, when you buy books that you've got already, uh-huh. uh, if they've got a, a different cover. Yes. So I bought down and out in Paris in London because I thought, I haven't got that Penguin Modern Classic cover from 1969. Right. Uh and then there was a copy of The Outsider. I went, oh, I haven't got that cover either. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was it. And then I looked at the Slaughterhouse-Five one. And I went, not different enough to the cover I've got. What a ridiculous thing to do.
0: Well, yeah. the people behind the counter would have thought, well, I really would have expected he'd read these books. What a <laughs> phony reading for the first time ever. Yeah,
2: but you know what, of course, I said, it's funny, but I've got all these books already, but these are such lovely covers. I have read them. I have read them, lady. <laughs> um,
1: what, uh, else? Uh, what else? What uh, else? Any any, collection, any Raymond Carver collection.
2: 100%. Bing! Yeah. Oh,
1: really? Raymond
2: Carver button. Yep. OK. No, there's nothing wrong with that, but that's when no, no. we had. No, no. We share Why have we... Uh, these were the... Uh, oh, sorry, I've just moved sorry. your microphone. There we go. Lovely down and out there. Penguin. Oh, <laughs> that Catholic. is beautiful. Uh, the copy of The Outsider was Jane Owens, Foundation Studies Harrow School of Art, which I always love oh, somebody has right. got a little label in them. And uh, I had to buy this Arthur C. Clark's. It's got one of those lovely pan covers, A Fall of Moondust. Oh, my that is beautiful. of my favourite periods of... Uh, and we, that was 3 and 6
0: we need to ask more because he's got more books to recommend uh, one, yeah, yeah no keep going
1: okay um i'm just at the moment rereading for the first time in years joan didion's the white album which oh i, enjoyed I bought very that
2: much. huge everyman collection of Didion like ever yeah, did wrote. That's a very good
1: yeah really like it got the most beautiful first line of any book um i've ever read we tell ourselves stories in order to live Ooh. Mm. Um, and she was hanging out with the Manson family, so she was writing a lot about that. It's, yeah, hanging out with Jim Morrison. Actually, the Jim Morrison section in the White Album's not that good. That just kind of reads like pop journalism. But yeah. but other parts of, of the book are, are brilliant.
0: She was hanging was, That must have been before...
1: Uh, it was about... The c- crimes... No, what happened was uh, she befriended Linda Kasabian, In who was, prison. Uh, yeah, who became who then turned state's witness mm-hmm. and um, and then got out because she was like she became state's witness and and Joan Didion actually picked out the dress that Linda Kasabian would wear on the witness stand. What?
2: Yeah. Right, we've run out of time. I was just going to okay. mention this because I should have read this years ago, and this <laughs> was also on David Bowie's top 100 list, William Faulkner's As I Lay Dying, oh. which is as uh, wonderful as you might imagine. Is it really incredible. great? Yeah, it's... Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's... Uh, you know, my. can I finish yeah, with my failing?
1: My failing is that I'm not great with literary fiction. Uh, I find it very hard to get into I'm the same. Yeah?
0: I, I just... Um, I really admire people who can be terse. And yeah. I really love... You know, like styles like um, Vonnegut or Carver or yeah. Orwell, where I mean, they're not similar really, but like they're yeah. all plain speaking. It's it, uh, well, uh, that's
2: uh, why I think on the back of this 1975 album, Camus Outside a Penguin Modern Classic it has a John Betjeman review. A book so well written and profoundly disturbing that it is in the class by itself. Seldom have I read a work which says so much in such a short space.
1: So, that's another one to read. If you like, so if you like the people we just mentioned, then we'd like Camus.
2: So, uh, thank you very much, John Ronson. Thank you. I'm sorry we can't plug your uh, uh, shows that are all over, all but your over. books are still readily available and all in print, apart from, tragically, uh, Clubbed Class, which goes for <laughs> £7,000 on Abe Books.
1: It's true. You go I'm... on Abe Books, it's like a grand. For yeah. a Is that club true? Clubs. Yeah, Listen. and I'm like, honestly, please. I'm am amazed by some yeah. of those
2: things. You have no yeah. idea why they're... I mean, yeah. you know, just that the, the rarity and the, the collector, yeah. the, it... the, the, the soon-to-be-disappointed collector. Yes. Who, well, I've, I've done that. Um, if you're um, in
0: New York, um, John does a fantastic show at the Union Halls with Mae Higgins, who's a fantastic comedian. And, uh,
2: uh, I'm new here is the name of the evening. And uh, the Smog Song, um, which is a great song. So uh, thank you very much, John. And I should also thank uh, everyone who, or not everyone, I'm going to thank some of the people who have contributed, which mean that we can keep this going. Uh, if you want to, by the way, see all the other episodes or hear the other episodes uh, and uh, the reading lists of the people we've had on, you can go to cosmicgenome.com uh, forward slash shamble you don't really have to say forward slash anymore do you but mm-hmm. i did because i'm 46 so <laughs> thank you to some of those people who pledged who are leslie pearson kieran danielle kushner jack Bro- i think it's jack jack brougham or brown i apologize we'll uh, do we'll mention you every time with a different pronunciation uh, maria <laughs> cannon uh jean satori jackie crawford Stuart moore david o. mohan and then do you want to continue josie from yes. michael kilminster
0: michael kilminster adam jones richard harahan thomas hale patrick baker Anachronism, Peter McGladdery, Malcolm Franks, and Vic Burgess uh, Thank you very much.
2: Thank you, and uh, we'll be back with another one soon. By the way, sorry, I think I was overly oppressive at times. <laughs> that does happen.
0: I think I checked my privilege. I think the other we had day. a nice it's just, time. It's weighty. We have a nice time <laughs> sparring, did not we? It was that tough sparring? Was it sparring? <laughs>
3: Hello, just a quick footnote from the producer to say we will be back with season three of Book Shambles in the summer. But we thought we'd put out a special now to celebrate the launch of our new series over at Cosmic Genome, which is The Quest for Wonder, a science comedy web series with puppets starring Robin Ince. And Professor Brian Cox, and just to keep it all in the Book Shambles family, the first episode features a guest appearance by Josie as well. And you can watch all those episodes for free at cosmicgenome.com slash quest for wonder. And Cosmic Genome subscribers will also have access to lots of bonus features as well. So do consider subscribing to that. Thanks very much. We hope you enjoyed this special with John Ronson. We hope you enjoy the Quest for Wonder, and we will see you soon. Oh, and I should add the reason that you don't hear any of Philosophy of the World by the Shags when John suggests that we should play a little bit is obviously for very predictable copyright reasons. But it's very easy to find on Spotify or YouTube or iTunes or any other music service of your choosing. Cheers. Bye.